Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we're talking about the movie Dune, in particular focusing on concepts of colonization and religion and messianic ideas and who creates messianic ideas. We're doing that with a good friend of mine, someone I know from my time as a pastor in the UCC, Chris McCurdle, and we'll be getting into all of that right after this commercial break. We have no control over. Welcome back, I'm Matthew, your host. I have to say, this is an episode that I've been really excited to try and make happen for a while. Um, it's always interesting to me when on Facebook, you know, your lives can intersect. And Chris, I think you and I hadn't met in person. We met in person uh, about a year. Uh, Good. We met in Long Beach. Oh, that's right. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I, My memory about these kind of things is terrible. Yeah, we met when, when I was still a pastor. We were both at the um, UCC Synod. But I, you know, and then you went onto my Facebook. And I didn't see you for a couple of years. And then I started seeing you post about, like, geek stuff. And I was like, oh, right. Oh, this is interesting. You know, the way those kind of worlds interact. And for me, as someone with a theological background, a ministerial background, I'm always interested in diving into when movies kind of, you know, get into theology and stuff like that or get into ideas of messianic concepts or colonization or all these kind of things and the role religion can play. And I've, Chris, I've really enjoyed your perspective on those kind of things and the way you've been posting about, you know, the same kind of love. And so when I started seeing you post about Dune, I was like, okay, this is a great time to invite Chris and get him on the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Cool. Well, tell us just a bit more about yourself in terms of like both the, the pastoral background, but also just like your love, your interest in like Dune and geeky things and kind of sure. where all that comes from. Well, I am, as you said, I'm an ordained United Church of Christ pastor. I have been since 2009. Uh, graduated from Eden Seminary that same year. <clears throat> I'm actually United Church of Christ on both sides of my family. And okay. <laughs> my, my mother's father was a UCC pastor. And then there's another, there's a great, great, great grandfather down that same side of the family. Um, and I, I grew up in uh, a geeky household. My parents would take us to all the movies, all, all the sci-fi and fantasy type movies, mm. uh, Disney animated films. The first film that I remember seeing in the movie theater <clears throat> was Star Wars in 1977. Nice. Although about all I remember is seeing R2-D2 and that we were there <laughs> with my uncle and his kids too. Uh, but I do remember it. I have a memory. <clears throat> nice. And my folks, I think it was mostly my dad, we had subscriptions when we were kids to Fantastic Four, Amazing Spider-Man, Marvel Team-Up, Battlestar Galactica, uh, Star Wars, all those comic books. And the rule in the house was that uh, we couldn't read them until Dad did. Okay. <laughs> and then at some point, you know, I, I grew up in a small town. We could just ride our bikes to the movie theater for the 2 o'clock matinees on on Saturday afternoons. Um, Dune, which I didn't read until many years later. And mm -hmm. once I read it as an adult, I was went, oh, I understand why I never read this as a 10-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't think it might have gone over my head. But uh, my friends and I, you know, rode our bikes down and saw Dune. And uh, in 1984, when we yeah. were 10 years old, and I think it was my first PG-13 movie. Because <clears throat> I'm pretty sure Dune was, was like maybe the second PG-13 movie ever. After, I think that's right. After yeah. Dreamscape. And uh, we were handed the vocabulary sheet, which you can Google and, and seek pictures of it. <laughs> because it had so much strange language in it that the filmmakers apparently thought you needed a little bit of help right and they're not wrong right um and in fact i think the version i saw on on the screen 
was the longer version that was an Alan Smithy movie. Mm, um, okay. Because I remember seeing things like uh, a sandworm being drowned, which is not in the the shorter the David, David Lynch, Lynch yeah. version, but it's in the longer version. I've always just loved the geeky stuff. Um, in college, I sort of fell for Tolkien. I got a late start on Tolkien, but I had grown up with Narnia and that sort of religion plus fantasy started working on me at that time. Mm, yeah. Um, such that in college, when I became, I was really more of a biblical studies major. I didn't think I was going to seminary or anything like that. But I, I really started enjoying seeing that sort of biblical kind of storytelling mm -hmm. in a different context. Because to me at that age, um, the Bible just basically read like a fantasy novel. Yeah. In parts. And, and that uh, I liked that. And, uh, you know, I went to I went to seminary a, a, a ways after I graduated from college um, and uh, sort of continued looking at things and from that perspective, even there. Right. Um, and and my congregation knows that I'm super geeky and my office is <laughs> my office is filled with toys and I have plenty of Star Wars toys, which were gifts from parishioners because nice. I would prefer Star Trek toys, but Star Wars toys are uh, more marketable. Yeah, that's that's certainly fair. And it's funny how you and I have completely different backgrounds, but came to that same merging of religion and fantasy stories and the interest there. Um, I, I, I'm I a few years younger than you, so the first time I saw Star Wars was when I was in the womb. Uh, <laughs> my mother went when she was like five, six months pregnant. Um, but then I continued to love them like as the... You know, I, it was when I first, my mother said Star Wars was my first babysitter on the Betamax. Um, and to me, I always joked that, like, I didn't get introduced until uh, Christianity, really, until I was a teenager. And it was because in the stories that I was reading, I was like, oh, this Jesus guy sounds a lot like what Yoda taught. Okay, <laughs> that, that's something I can kind of get with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and again, just to be very clear for the people in the audience, this is not going to be a... Um, I think the reason why you and I are both interested in this topic is because of how it helps inform the way we think about this story. Mm -hmm. And and so please, for anybody in the audience who is not Christian or is not religious, this don't think this podcast isn't going to be for you. We're just kind of establishing like, where we're coming from in terms of talking about this stuff. And especially because we're talking so much about messianic stuff, um, I would certainly I, – I did some research and found a couple of interesting writings from rabbis about Jewish messianic thought in this book. Uh, there was one person who I asked to be on the podcast. They weren't able to make it. But certainly in terms of our fans and listeners, if there's more from that perspective you want to add, uh, please do. And we'll talk at the end about how you can give feedback because uh, certainly I want to make very clear that Christianity does not have the monopoly on messianic thinking. Mm, um, not at all. But it's just kind of an interesting perspective as we come to this book. So, so you talked about you read the book in college. Let's talk about kind of um, – what what were your kind of your overall thoughts on the story? You know, in terms of what what you liked, what you're curious about, what you kind of have some issues of, or and and we'll get into kind of what we were what we're thinking before we went to see this movie. Yeah, um, one of the things that stands out for me every time I reread the book, probably read it I don't know three or four times, including mm -hmm. I'm rereading it right now. Nice um, is the way that Herbert has what by all appearances seems to be. Uh, a, a galaxy spanning religious system that is quite obviously uh, a, a, a descendant, a generational right. descendant of many of the religious traditions that are active in the world today. There's clearly some Christian content in there. I'd say the, the Islamic content seems to be 
even more prevalent a lot of the language mm -hmm. that gets used but but really so so much of a mix the the uh Bene Gesserit are very much like nuns they have yeah. things like the missionaria protectiva so you've got some latin sounding stuff coming in there the reverend mother is the literal title yeah. of their <clears throat> and then you meet the fremen and they lean more into sort of desert culture stuff with an emphasis on some islamic kind of language that i noticed mm -hmm. sharia comes up here and there certainly not in the t in the way we see it popularly right. used today and i always wonder what non-religious people think about that kind of stuff when they read it right uh and it's just it's fascinating to me and i love the fact that they have um a bible you know the orange catholic bible Mm -hmm. And that people read it devotionally and that it is obviously many, many, you know, I don't even remember how many thousands of years we are in the future um, from where we are now. I think it's 65,000. <clears throat> oh, my gosh. Is that what it is? But yeah. that something like that has, per you know, these stories have persisted and changed right. and evolved over time. Um, and, you know, the Bible that we have as Christians is many thousands of years old in various parts, but they've got one that has gone, like right. you say, another 65,000 years, and it looks the same and completely different. Yeah. As you said, the idea that the religion of that time is kind of an amalgam of current religions and, and new thoughts, I mean, there's historical precedent for that. You know, Christianity is obviously based in, in Jewish roots, but like, you know, so many of those stories can also have roots in Zoroastrian stories or, right. or Babylonian or all these kind of things. Lots and, of ancient Near Eastern stuff. Exactly. I think that yeah. kind of so, covers the whole spectrum. Yeah. And what was your take on the kind of messianic idea of of the Dune books go, uh, going into this movie? Because for me, at least, that's always been one of the things I have both loved and kind of wrestled with. And right. I think the because you know the the central concept of the of the book, and I think of the movie. And for those of you who don't know the Dune story. Uh, and all you have seen is this first movie. I, I'm I'm a little bit careful to try and not spoil things that I think are going to happen in book in movie two, but it's also a book and a movie that's 20 years or fit, almost 60 years old. Yeah. So there may be some spoiling that happens here. But you know, one of the main concepts is this idea of the 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 person who has been kind of bred by the Bene Gesserit to be this Messiah figure for the Fremen, you know, the the one that they they, they talk about and think about. And certainly uh, in the movie, we'll get to, like, that's, that's a very strong theme. And it's one that I've always wrestled with because this idea of the outsider, the kind of dances with wolves, you know, the, 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 the hybrid noble is the one who knows the native people better than anyone else. Yeah. And he can become their religious uh, prophet is one that I think is, is a very appealing story, but also is very problematic in some ways. Um, yeah. and, and it was one that I was very curious how the movie was going to cover. What, what was your kind of thought on that? Well, I mean, I've had a lot of those same concerns because, um, you know, the last thing we need is another white savior story. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's really fascinating to think how it comes together because you have the Bene Gesserit sort of, well, one, they, they have their genetic operation where they're trying to produce the Kwisatz Haderach. Right. It's this very powerful person in this very binary gender situation where women can do certain things and men can do others. And that's a product of its time. Right. Um, but at the same time, they've also, through their Missionaria Protectiva, which gets touched on in Dune Part 1 here, I don't think that to someone who hasn't read the book that they're going to have any clue what this all means. <clears throat> but I think Jessica says something at some point about, oh, they've been here. Or the right. Reverend Mother says, 
you know, we've done what we can to protect you. And that's by seeding all of these worlds, including the Fremen on, on Arrakis with these legends mm -hmm. that Bene Gesserit can then come in and manipulate to their needs. Right. <clears throat> so there's this very sort of earthly to, to use the content, my pastoral context, earthly and heavenly, right? There's mm -hmm. this very sort of earthly effort to manipulate, to claim and manipulate power to their end. Right. But it, and you start to see this in Dune 1, it spirals out of their control. Mm, yeah. Partly because as we see right off the bat, Jessica sort of messes up their genetic profile. Mm -hmm. She's supposed to bear uh, a daughter, but she ends up bearing a son and they're all kind of freaking out and they're wondering if they've just accidentally created the Kwisatz Haderach, perhaps a generation too soon. The book gives us a lot more information about that in the first half. The movie didn't really touch on it. And I, I don't want to say much more on that line because Dune Part 2 is likely to reveal um, a right. lot of what's really going on there. But I, I don't... I haven't decided if Herbert would want us to think that there is God, in whatever form God looks like in the Dune novels, operating in the background. Mm. But it's like humans set something into motion that they couldn't control. Right. And... I think it also betrayed a fundamental misunderstanding of how the Fremen work and how the, the conditions on that planet took that story and turned it into something massively powerful. And Paul and his mom <clears throat> fall into that and immediately start to lose control. Right. And I think that, oh, go ahead. And, 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 and they, in Dune part one, they do start to touch on that when they're in the still tent and Paul starts to have visions of the future of a, of a holy war, a jihad. Right. And he doesn't seem to like it. And if you've read the book, you know he does not like this. Right. And I, I, I do think, I think the, um, I think Herbert was writing at a time where he was thinking in terms of like the word jihad meaning a holy war. I think yeah. that's what, like you said about gender. I think there, he was writing at a time where understandings of Islam, especially in his Western context, were not the best. And, right. you know, I think that, you know, today I think we've come to understand that the, the view of jihad as holy war has a lot of like Islamophobic ideas to it, it that does. we've, a lot of us hopefully moved away from. And I think it's one of the things that I, I want to get into with the movie itself is how they've kind of modernized those, those aspects. But I love what you're saying because my take has always been, I don't know anything about Herbert personally. I don't know if he's making a comment on faith in terms of like, is there a God and is there a God in this world or, mm -hmm, or in mm -hmm. the world of Dune? But I certainly think he's being incredibly critical of organized religion because I think the idea of, you know, it's made very clear, like you said, that the Bene Gesserit are doing this very manipulative idea almost of, not even almost, of, like you said, seeding the whole galaxy with people who will, so they can kind of create this idea of a prophecy and then claim to fulfill it. Uh, it's for Babylon 5 fans, it reminds me a lot of what the Vorlons do in That's terms of like, too. yeah. Yep, I got yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure you see that connection there. And I, Yeah, oh, I absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I kind of wonder if JMS was even thinking of that uh, as he wrote that because it's just this, it, I, I think one of the things that we want to believe in organized religion, and it's certainly like, I think some parts of it will tell you is that like the prophecies were handed down by God and then later this person or these many different people fulfilled those prophecies mm -hmm. and that couldn't be a coincidence and isn't it in, in isn't that 
proof of that all of this is sacred and real and wonderful. And I, as a believer, I do think there's some truth to that. But I think when you when you really dive into the biblical record, you know, one thing you realize is, you know, when when the Gospels are saying which of the prophecies that Jesus, you know, fulfilled, they're cherry picking a little bit to kind of yeah. make the point. They're writing more. it and all that, after the fact. Right, exactly. And, and, and shaping that, you know, the story to fit the pre-existing content. Right. It's kind of like people who look at like, um, I think it's Nicodemus who was supposed to have like predicted so much of the future. And everyone else. Nostradamus. Thank you. Um, two very different characters. The thing is, Nostradamus predicted like thousands and thousands of things. And right. when you throw that many darts at the wall, accidentally some of them are going to be right. Something's going to hit. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's talk more about the Bene Gesserit. Like, what, what do you think of this idea of a religious group that is like, do they have any kind of altruistic motive? Is this just about holding their power or like what they think the world should be? What's um, where do you think you're going with that? I've got man, I got all kinds of thoughts about that. Well, first of all, I don't know that. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this is what you said, but I don't think Dune is necessarily a critique of organized religion and its quest to wield power. I think that Dune has even deeper than that and, and maybe this just makes me sound like a religious apologist and that may be true <laughs> um <clears throat> i think that underneath that is just power itself mm, and it's yeah. such a prevailing theme in the book you hear it in the movie desert power right, right. that's what leto is telling paul all the time we have to go find we think this desert power is there and it's a power that's going to be able to do it we we ruled caladan by air power we're going to rule Arrakis by desert power and we think that we can take that out into the galaxy and, right. and really mess things up <clears throat> because you have the Bene Gesserit which do appear to be uh, overtly religious but we don't get to see them in any kind of liturgical way right. so it doesn't come off to me as so much religious as it does this religiously informed order of matriarchs which I think is awesome mm -hmm. um operating in the shadows to steer what they can of an of an exceedingly chaotic galaxy i don't know is the context a galaxy or is it wider than that i, I think it's just a galaxy yeah. but yeah it's, it's not entirely clear <clears throat> because Certainly in the you, movie it doesn't seem because power is also you know you you've got the padishah emperor who wields power in two different ways one he's got the sardaukar which until mm -hmm. we meet the fremen are the nastiest soldiers in the galaxy that nobody wants to that nobody can fight against and then i you'll have to remind me if they touch upon this at all in this version of dune in the villeneuve version but then there's the chome company so basically the big gigantic galaxy spanning corporate megalith that controls the spice and all other aspects of human life right and he and the the, the emperor and his cronies have a controlling share in that Right. So you've got this sort of royal power. You've got massive economic power. The Bene Gesserit have uh, female power mm -hmm. and religious power in the background. <clears throat> and then they all meet the Fremen who are like, oh, no, we're desert power. And they are actually the truly religious ones that you right. see, um, which is not something that we see too much of in the first movie here. Yeah. Uh, there's kind of two things I'll say to that. One is just kind of the questions you brought up. I don't think they went. I actually was on a podcast last night. Uh, I'm also doing a. I, I was I was actually recording a podcast last night. I have another podcast that's more about June gen, 
Dune generally uh, that you can find on the next real family of podcasts. Um, so definitely check that out too as well. I'll click a link to that in the show notes. But I think so. They don't, and and there we talked about like the fact that we didn't get into the emperor and the empire at all in the politics that I would right, have liked right. to. So that the corporation isn't mentioned, nor is, and here I don't think it's explicitly listed as a religion, but certainly in the book there's an idea of the 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 what, what's I can never pronounce their name the the, the soldiers of the of the emperor the Sardaukar, Sardaukar. Thank you. That they're, I think we see a, a couple signs of this in the movie, but very brief. Their devotion to him is like a religious cult. Yeah, I mean, he's he, kind of a. He seems to be pretty much akin to a god for them. Yeah, he's a god emperor kind of figure, which I think is, again, it's one more way of playing it. And I think it's funny, I haven't been able to put it into these terms before, but the way you kind of said that, I don't think you're being a religious apologist. I think you're pointing out that, and again, here, I don't want to get too theological for those who sure. don't know this story, but I think it's interesting. One of the things the. The things that ha- that is discussed a lot in Christianity is the idea of you know God standing on the side of the oppressed mm-hmm. and the you know that's what liberation theology is all about and obviously an awful lot of Christians don't seem to practice that and that's the no. thing that you can find both me and Chris being very critical of but one of the things that I think has been an interesting part of the story is the times when oppressors have taught a religion to the oppressed. And the oppressed have kind of taken that religion and run with it in ways that were never intended. And exactly. To me, like, um, again, I'm, I'm a white person, so me commenting on this, please, uh, you know, there's much better people who talk about this like James Cone. But I'm kind of wondering here, like, like African-American, black Christianity, is a, it was taught by white slave masters to slaves mm-hmm. as a way to try to justify slavery. <coughs> And yet Christianity grew to something that became, a, um, uh, not the only, but a major force in sort of uh, that part of black liberation and, and, and breaking out of slavery and the civil rights movement and things like that, as well as other black religious traditions like Malcolm X and, and black Islam and things like that. Uh, my, my point being, I wonder if intentionally or not, this idea of the Bene Gesserit trying to teach the Fremen people religion and that, like you said, it kind of getting far out of their control and it becoming for the Fremen this religious belief in the Messiah is something that's going to be part of their fighting back against the empire and the Bene Gesserit and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it's an intentional <clears throat> parallel, but it's a very interesting kind of way to view it. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, just to touch again on that out of control thing, as I'm <clears throat> reading early in the book, and you, you start to get a little sense of it when uh, in the film, which just because of the realities of time, and just exactly how much internal monologuing you get in the book and how do you translate that to the film. Right. I feel like the scene between Jessica and the shout-out Mapes, um, it, it's so hard to reveal how much subtext is going on there. Right. And in the film, what doesn't seem to be abundantly clear, I've only watched it, I watched it the other day for the first time, I haven't rewatched it yet. Jessica realizes in that moment that not only did the Missionaria Protectiva plant seeds of faith that she's trained to manipulate she also realizes that these people have taken it in a dire- in a direction that if she doesn't manipulate it just right they will kill her yeah she almost does it but she says the right thing almost by accident mm-hmm. and it just takes off from there right and you know it, it's interesting to me it, it, <clears throat> to think somebody might read this and I wonder how many people would read that phenomenon and read a higher power into it. Like if this were Tolkien, Tolkien would say like, oh no, this is totally sort of like something in the background is manipulating events, you know, 
uh, it's such a strange coincidence that the ring falls into the hand of a hobbit. Ah, mm -hmm. Gandalf says, you were meant to have it. Um, <clears throat> you don't get that in Dune. Right. But it's not hard to imagine the Fremen themselves saying, no, you were sent to us. Right. You're here for a purpose. You know, because as soon as the, the, as soon as the Atreides clan lands on Arrakis and the new Dune does touch on this a little bit, they're calling out Lisan al-Gaib. Their, their messianic uh, language is heard in the streets of Arakeen. And it becomes very clear very quickly that Jessica and Paul are tied up in this in a way that they almost have no power to stop. Right. <clears throat> and, and that's such a good way to transition to one of the things I want. I, I think we're going to get back to Jessica and Paul and talk about especially Paul's feelings <clears throat> on being this pre-programmed messianic figure and the ethics around that. But let's talk about Duke Leto somewhat, yeah. because one of the things that I think was a big concern of mine going into this book was, like you said, the white savior not con the white savior narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the book and somewhat the, the the David Lynch movie, it, to me, it's very kind of dances with wolves idea of you know the yeah. the noble white man yeah. from far away <clears throat> who comes to the native planet but can out native the natives and lead them to victory, mm -hmm. and I. I was really impressed because I, I thought I saw something very different in the movie. In that, I mean, certainly that idea is happening, but like, let's, starting just with, with Duke Leto, you know, his whole concept is the Harkonnens were horrible oppressors. He wants to be the benevolent ruler, mm -hmm. and he kind of comes in with this idea of, no, 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 I'm going to be good to the the, the natives, the to the Fremen, but I'm still going to take all your stuff. Yeah. Like, and I, I feel like the the the, the movie understood. I'm curious what you thought, but what my view was that the movie understood that the Duke is fundamentally being naive and kind of missing the point in that he thinks he can be a benevolent ruler while still taking all the resources from the planet for his people. And the one of the points of the movie, especially in the, the conflicts he has with some of the Fremen leaders, is that you really can't do that. You are still an oppressor by coming to this planet and, and ruling them as an outsider. Is that? Did you get some of that? Uh, yeah. And my brain's taking it in a slightly different direction because mm. I see, again, the prevailing theme I see here is always about power. Who has it, who doesn't. Right. And people thinking that they're powerful, but knowing that they're just riding the edge of a knife blade. And right. one misstep, a different kind of power is going to come annihilate them. And, and we've already talked about Paul... And and we're going to see more of this, I'm sure, in the second movie, <clears throat> if Warner if it gets made, yeah, yeah, if Warner Brothers actually demonstrates some courageous funding of a new movie, um, which I am <laughs> worried about. But you know, Paul Paul falls into this system where he let me re let me rephrase how I start this. One of the most powerful scenes in the movie for me <clears throat> was toward the end. When Paul and his mother are in the Ornithopter mm -hmm. and they're fleeing from the Harkonnens or Harkonnens, as you pronounce it in the 2021 version of the film. I hate that. <laughs> it's okay, Harkonnen in the 1984 <laughs> version. So that's yeah. how I'm going to say it. They're fleeing the Harkonnens and they go into the Coriolis storm and he remembers somebody or he has a vision saying something to him about the only way you can survive is to submit something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And he tucks the wings in and he shuts off the power and he just lets the wind take them and he hopes he comes out of it okay. 
<clears throat> that is a metaphor for both Paul's relationship with the Fremen to come, and it's a total metaphor for the for Duke Leto's relationship with the Emperor and everything going on in the galaxy. <clears throat> he knows that he knows that he has been maneuvered into a storm, and he is going to go ahead and tuck in the wings and go straight into it and hope that he can ride it out. He trusts that Thufar Hawat, who is woefully underused, both of the Mentats are woefully underused in, in Dune Part 1 here. Um, <clears throat> he hopes that because of the allies he has, the intelligence he has, the experience, he has a Bene Gesserit wife, he's got one of the best Mentats in the known galaxy, known universe. <clears throat> which we don't even learn what a Mentat is right, in this and movie. Right, and much less that Paul is one, which is something every right. filmed version of this ever has run away from. do you want to explain what a mentat is uh, a ment uh, at some point in the past history of humanity in the dune series you get this sort of like terminator thing going on and machines and computers take over perhaps i know they've explored this in some of the 22 novels 19 of which i haven't 18 of which i haven't read but <laughs> um they, they decide at some point I, I i've always gathered there's some kind of like post-apocalyptic period where they were like, oh, our reliance on computers um, led us down this really bad path. So we need to stop doing that. And it's actually, there, there are rules in their Bible, in their OC Bible that say, thou shalt not make a computer, basically. Right. And so what they've done instead is they've developed certain genetic gifts in certain people that turn them essentially into living computers. And so right. Thufar Hawat um, is one of those and he's loyal to the Atreides family for three generations. And it was really cool in the movie that you see his, like, almost a film, but are like his eyes flip back in his head, and you can tell he's doing his computations. Right. And Peter DeVries, played by David Dalmastic. Dalmastic? Well, he's in Ant-Man. Um, yeah. <laughs> he's working for the uh, <clears throat> Harkonnens, and also woefully underused you really i was like no let's just have brad dorif in the 1984 version because he was awesome and they are human computers that calculate the odds they're like c-3po sitting in the cockpit of the of the mm -hmm. of the millennium falcon saying oh the odds of this sur surviving uh succeeding are 476,000.3 to 1 and Thufar Hawat knows that that the atreides family is moving into a trap and they've convinced themselves that knowing it's a trap gives them the chance to survive it. Right. But that storm they fly into at the end of the movie, you are completely powerless. And part of the reason I think Duke Leto fails is because he's still trying to put his thumb on the scale. He's still, still trying to assert what power he perceives himself as having. Right. But at this point, there's just too much stacked against him. Yeah, I love the way you talk about that ornithopter scene. I hadn't seen those details necessarily. I got a sense of that, but I think you, you really put your finger on it exactly. For me, the scene that is so fundamental with Duke Leto is when he's talking to the Fremen leader. I think it's Stilgar. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to explain how he's going to be this benevolent ruler and he's going to let them, you know, have a lot more freedom than the Harkonnens did. And, and the leader, Stilgar, is like, well, great, but just don't come into the desert. Yeah. And and Leto, that's where the sort of rubber hits the road, where he's like, I want to be this benevolent ruler, but I need to get the spice. Yeah, I need and, to make money. <laughs> right. And I feel like that's kind of, to me, that's that moment of him having to realize, like, he can't just have this perfectly benevolent relationship with a Fremen if he is still their ruler. Yeah. He is uh, especially, in inherently a colonizer in that moment. Right. Especially he, because uh, the 
it, it gets hinted at a little bit in the movie, and I hope they can develop it more in the second part. So I guess we are kind of spoiling some things for the second part. My apologies, but it's it, again 30, 40 years old. However, when the source old the material movie is. is that old. Yeah. You could only go just so far, I think. Right. And we won't kind of major plot points, but one of the main themes that I do think the movie hinted at is that Spice isn't like it. it I think the, the thought of the colonizers is that we're taking this thing that the Fremen don't care about because they don't do interstellar travel. So what do they care? Right. They don't want riches. Right. Which is always a ridiculous kind of idea to begin with of colonization. But one of the things that we're starting to learn is that the Spice is connected with the worms, the Shai Hadat. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Shai Halud. Shai Halud, thank you. <clears throat> and that, therefore, is sacred to them. That the Spice and the Shai Halud... The Shai Halud are in some way connected to the creation of the Spice, and, and the Shai Halud are sacred to them, and so the Spice is sacred to them. And right. so I think that's a... It's, again, a major turning point of realizing, like, this whole thing you're doing of taking the, the Spice melange is never something the Fremen are going to be fully okay with. Right. I mean... <clears throat> it's in this context where water is the most valuable thing. And that's what the outsiders come in and they see. They're like, oh, water is so powerful. And you do get, they, they touch on that in this movie um, because they talk about the 100 palm trees. Right. The 100 date palms where each one requires 40 liters of water a day to survive the climate. Whereas a human only requires 8 liters of water a day. And so those 20 palm trees are the equivalent of 100 people that could survive. Right. And I think Paul says, you know, shouldn't we take them down? And like, no, no, no. Some of the people see this as a sacred kind of thing. And um, I'm losing my train of thought. Of, oh, water. So the outsiders come in and they're like, oh, water is the most important thing. And it signals that they have not yet fully come to understand the Fremen. Because for the Fremen, there is something more, more important than water. Right. And it's only lightly touched upon in the first film. It's going to be it, Paul and Jessica are going to have to learn this in order to survive in the second film. Right. Just exactly what is more, more uh, valuable than water. Right. Because <clears throat> water is survival, but the more powerful thing is life. Right. And it's their religion. It's their whole worldview. So shy. Yeah. Dude. And I think that's so good. I think that's such a good way of putting it. And also, though, but I also do love that even their attitude towards water is so fundamentally different. I, like, just in terms of thinking about cross-cultural exchange, and you're a Star Trek fan, so you're probably... Uh, one thing I always love in Star Trek is the idea of, you know, I do this thing because it means this to me, but that I, the exact same thing means something very different to you, and mm -hmm. that's how disagreements start. And, and we only understand things if we, like can understand each other's metaphors. You know, that's the whole point of the... Um... Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. Exactly, exactly. And so there's this moment where, to Duke Leto, as I think probably to most of us today, if I spit, in the f if I spit on the floor in front of someone, that that's a very offensive act in many cultures. I yeah. mean, certainly the ones that I'm raised in. And there you have Aquaman telling him not to fight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, but, a, but, that's a meta joke, though. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in this world where... So much of what you do at every moment is to conserve and recycle the water of your mm -hmm. own body and to never waste it. The idea of spitting on spitting your water on the floor because you're in some ways you're kind of giving it to someone else. Like I yeah. think that there are cultures where like spit it like moisture on the ground is wiped up and saved. Yeah. You're giving someone the literal moisture of your body. And I just love the way the movie showed that. I love that whole idea because it is from the book, I believe, of yeah, just how fundamentally different these cultural understandings are. And as you said, that Jessica and Paul, 
they 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 could never he could never actually be the messianic figure that the Bene Gesserit want him to be while he's living as an Atreides. He can't be both a colonizer and the the religious figure for the colonized. He has to become one of the colonized. He has to become part of the the Fremen. Which, you know, in the 1984 movie and in the book itself, you have <laughs> the perfect visual metaphor to symbolize that, you know, I guess going native dynamic mm-hmm. by the bluing of the eyes. Right. Because right. by the time his eyes go completely blue from his constant exposure to melange, um, you know, that's the visual cue that he's becoming right. of the oppressed. He's right. no longer the oppressor. Although, of course, that's not true. <laughs> because yeah, I mean, what he's going to turn around and do is leverage his heritage and his new power to create new power and seize power. That's the that's what his vision is showing him. Right. And, and that's where I think that's the thing that probably I'm most curious about to see how they handle it in the second movie. Because, as I was saying before, that's one of my biggest problems with the novel is I do think the idea of that you can become a native and thus be the native figure, you know, it's a very old Western trope of, you know, the last samurai that dances with wolves. They're obviously, they are going to tell that story because it's, it is the story as written by Herbert so many years ago. I think though they're playing a lot with it. I think in um, like the other podcast I was doing, we talked about how a lot uh, the Fremen are really supposed to be, should be the main character Mm -hmm. and that the movie seems to be, uh, and that the Zendaya character who, Zendaya probably got paid very well to say, I think, five lines of dialogue. <laughs> she doesn't have a lot to do this time around. But it's clear she's supposed to be a very important figure. And yeah. I... <clears throat> Although even that... in the book, you can tell a man wrote the book. Right. Yeah, in uh, the book... Because Chani, that's the character, Chani. Mm-hmm. Um, she... She's often at the service of the men around her. Right. And and and, and then certainly, in the to me, that was one of the biggest problems with this first movie, was she's portrayed as like... You know, the white man falling in love with the exotic, you know, uh, with the, right. all the things that are problematic there. And, and again, Oscar Isaac isn't himself white. I think Timothy Chalamet is not is not uh, white himself identified. I'm, I'm not exactly sure on that. They're playing with that a little bit, but those dynamics are still there. Yeah. So, yeah, that'll be something else to, very interesting to see if and when the second movie gets made. Well, and, and, you know, one of the things that I appreciated about the Lord of the Rings adaptations um, is that... Um, you know, they're being written and adapted by a man and two women who understand that the books being a product of their time, Tolkien gave his female characters, as few as they were, very little to do. Right. And so they, they modified some of the positioning of who says what and who does what. They give Arwen a much bigger role, that kind of stuff. And you can see Villeneuve doing the same thing in Dune Part 1 because uh, Leet Kynes, they gender swap Right. From the judge a, of the change. Yeah, the judge of the change from a white man to a black woman. Right. And it'll be interesting moving forward for me. I'll be watching to see if Chani gets to do more stuff in Dune Part 2 than what she even got to do in the novel. Right. I certainly hope so. I yeah. think I, you know, but we'll see. There's one last thing I want to say about the judge of the change and Duke Leto sure. and get your thoughts on it. And then let's move on to, to Paul and, and sort of where he fits ethically in all this. Um, to me, the scene with the judge of the change is very important because to me, the other kind of theme that I got out of the movie that I think is a little bit in the book, but I think the movie was really playing up. And I don't think coincidentally is that is the kind of 
you know, if you are the one person playing by the rules, even though you should know that no one else is playing by the rules, like that's never going to work for mm-hmm. you or it can be problematic in that he, you know, for him, he fundamentally believes that the, the, the judge of the change is going to be the one to say, oh, yes, clearly the Harkonnens did not do a fair exchange. So we will fix that. Right. And they don't care. And <clears throat> again, I, I try not to make too many like outright political statements, but I think even from any poli- I try not to make too many outright political statements, but I do think that, like, in our own world, there's certainly one perception of what's happening is that one group is not playing by the same democratic rules that others have for a long time. And and there's a frustration that the other group is is continuing to assume (laughs) that they're doing that. And and I think that clearly I'm coming at it from the left. I think some people from the right see the same thing happening, but the other direction, which is not a frame I agree with. But but my point is, I think I don't think it's coincidental that I don't think the movie is trying to make a like. Trump is the Harkonnen's point at all. No, but no. I do think that that having a point of belief in the system when everyone else has is is cutting corners all the time, it, it can, can get you into real trouble. You know that there, there's a – Leto to me comes off as incredibly naive. In his oh, absolutely. That like the Duke of the Change – the, the <clears throat> judge of the change is what will save him when clearly she doesn't actually have any power anymore. Yeah. And she knows that. Right. I mean, she knows that she's a figurehead for she's a figurehead for the rules, right? And Leto is hoping that the rules will be his savior, but Leet already knows. Leet is such an interesting character. Double agent isn't isn't the right word. More like uh, dual loyalties here. Yeah, because Leet sort of plays the game with the empire with the emperor even to the point of saying i'm i'm not allowed to help you right and i don't think that's necessarily so much by the rules as it is also i understand that this authoritarian in charge has basically told me to stonewall you that's sort of the impression i get sometimes Mm -hmm. and yet leet has also gone native although on multiple readings of the book, I keep thinking that Leet was native to begin with, and my brother said that was right. a misreading of the text. Well, I, I certainly thought the movie was taking that reading. I mean, my I the movie to me, particularly because I don't think we see many people of of, of color, especially that dark skinned, among uh, the Atreides of the Harkonnen. Yeah. I, I certainly felt like the movie was saying that she was a fremen who had become you know had had gotten this job and had been working within the empire for a long time yeah that was sort of the impression i got and in the and in the book this isn't really a big spoiler because in dune part one leet is dead um in the book leet kynes and stilgar are uh brothers right and whether that's an adoptive choice thing or a blood thing i always thought it was a blood thing my brother told me i was wrong (laughs) <laughs> and and, my, and I'm going to be watching for it in my current reread of the book. Um, but, you know, even as Leet is opera, Kynes really is the, is the, the federal name, as it were, the imperial mm-hmm. name. Leet is the Fremen name. Um, even though Kynes is working within the system, Kynes has her own agenda as a right. Fremen. So she's the way that the Fremen have infiltrated the Padishah Emperor's world to try and bring about the outcomes that they wish. It's almost like their Bene Gesserit light kind of situation yeah. here. They've just come at it. You know, they're trying to achieve power in a variety of ways. And, right. and, and the two brothers in a way are great 
so, you know, because I think in any kind of uh, movement of, of of the oppressed, like there's always this tension of like, do you try to work within the system to overthrow the system, or do you attack the system from outside? Yeah, and. Uh, you know, Stilgar is on one end of that, and Kynes is working the other angle. Very it's like, much let's so. Yeah. Tr- let's try to hit all the points yeah. here, and you know, and it reveals a savviness in the Fremen, right. which is touched on in Dune Part One because you start pulling out all this tech that was produced by the Fremen, and you're like, the Harkonnens think there are like fifty thousand of them, right? How could a culture of fifty thousand people, you know? And, and it's not even something you get to see in the books, at least not the first three books. You don't even get to see like whatever underground factory cities they've got going on where they've developed thumpers and sand compactors and compasses that work on a planet where magne- magnetic fields don't work right. Right. And and we get these hints in Dune Part 1 that in their way, for their context, the Fremen are incredibly advanced technologically we know that they have what they would ref- probably feel is an a ad- very advanced religious worldview, but you can also see them operating in circles of power in very subtle ways. And uh, of course, you know, knife fighting the subtle edge of a blade. That's such a recurring right. theme that they are the knife and nobody yeah. figures it out until it's too late. I think that's so true. And in movies, like I keep using dances with wolves. Cause I think that's the best example, but it's a very it old tradition and in a lot of those movies, there's often this trope of kind of the, the going back to the idea of the noble savage, you right, know, that they're right. they're primitive, they're they're savage, but they understand nature better than we do and things like that. And it can become a very problematic trope. I think, though, that there's often but there is some truth to the idea of like the oppressor who comes in and tries to like take things from the land without understanding the land. And that I, I think. The book, I think, was a little closer to the problematic trope, but not entirely. But the yeah. movie, especially, I thought, did a very good job of showing that the Fremen have developed all this tech where they understand the worms. They, mm-hmm. they they worship the worms, but they also know how to keep themselves safe from the worms in a way that, like, we know that the everyone else has been on this planet for hundreds of years, but they still haven't figured out, right. you know? And right. that they have to just rely on yoinking their you know crawlers up into the air every time a worm shows up because they haven't even figured out how to do that the walk or how to make their technology do things like that right and right at the very end of dune part one um particularly when when kinds is about to die and then the very last scene you know you see kinds put out the maker hooks which you don't know at this point that they're called maker hooks (laughs) um um and you know she's got a plan she's trying to do something and it doesn't work out because the, I think, is it Sardaukar or Harkonnens at that point? I think they're Sardaukar. Mm-hmm. Um, catch up, which is a nice little foreshadowing of what we're going to see when Sardaukar and Fremen next meet. Um, and then at the very end, Paul gets a glimpse of somebody riding a worm, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So they just steer it away. That, that noble savage thing, too. It, it's true because I, you could very clearly draw the parallel between this sort of <clears throat> this this sort of white colonizing uh glorified view of indigenous north americans and their relationship with the bison they use right. all the parts they respect it they only take what they need all that kinds of stuff and we glorify that but ultimately as we know to our detriment and to our sorrow indigenous north americans didn't have power 
to preserve that context in the face of people coming in with guns and whiskey and diseases flu yeah. and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I suspect that the Atreides or the Harkonnens or whoever have looked at the, the, the Fremen and we get that scene of them being so careful with their water when Jameis dies and you know, preserving every drop they can. That's sort of like right. what we see in that thing. But these indigenous folks have power that they have built and numbers that they have built and successfully kept hidden, which takes that sort of noble savage thing and says, yeah, this noble savage is going to kick your ass. Right. <clears throat> well, especially because there's an idea of there's such a difference between not having power and deciding what power you do or don't want to claim. Yeah. You know, I, I think one of the themes that kind of comes out of the books is that like all the, you, in the movie, they don't at all get into one of my favorite parts of the books. And I think a, a thing that David Lynch movie really captured the idea of like spice isn't actually something you put into your machines. B basically like think of the idea of like, I'm so high that I can see through time and space. Mm -hmm. Spice does that literally. Yeah. You get so high that you can manipulate space-time yeah. um, in this crazy way. And I think there's an idea of, like, the Fremen understand that and think that's not actually the greatest thing in the world. Like, And so there's such an interesting idea of, like, they're choosing to use their power in different ways. And that's where, again, I'm going to be very curious to see where it goes in part two. Because I think there's a way to read the story where it's they have this power, but they don't know how to use it. They don't understand it until Paul comes along and teaches them. Mm -hmm. And I think they're, from what I've seen in the first part, I think they're not going that direction as much as I would fear. But we'll, again, have to see what DC does with it. Yeah. Yeah. Paul comes in and they end up, you know, they have to teach him. Yeah. So let's talk about Paul himself. <clears throat> I don't want to go on too much longer, uh, but I think this is kind of one of the main themes of the of the book and the movie He's in this very interesting position because often what we get is the person who is told that they fulfill the prophecy, you know, like the Neo role or things like that, mm -hmm. where you're or, or or the Jesus role or whoever it is, where you're learning that you are the fulfillment of prophecy. But Paul, to me, is so fascinating because he goes one step further because, like you said, he has the divided loyalties. He knows that he is the film, fulfillment of prophecy, but he knows that that's not that's not coincidental, that that's not fate. It is a thing that humans have manipulated and made to happen through the Bene Gesserit. Mm -hmm. And some of my favorite parts of this are him kind of pushing back against his mother. Uh, what do you think of kind of the situation he's in of like, do I accept this role that was kind of created in this manipulative way, uh, even though I think I can be very helpful or what do I do with this? Well, he, I mean, he's a character who is totally torn between his maternal and paternal heritage. Right. He loves his father He's being trained by by Gurney, by Duncan Idaho, by Thufer to live in that world, um, to operate in an imperial context. And the entire time this is going on, his mother is teaching him how to use his brain and his body in the Bene Gesserit way. And only belatedly does he... And of course, there's the third thing there of the Mentat, which is only for people who've read the book. Um, where he has to make an active choice whether or not to embrace that side of him. You know, he's actually a triple threat. Um, <laughs> but he has to decide which way he's going to go. And once he learns 
you know, the, the Reverend Mother comes, uh, Gaius Helen, to, to sort of interrogate him and find out if he's human, which I'm really glad that scene was largely preserved from the book. Um, he ne- he learns so abruptly at that point that the stuff that his mom was doing with him was toward a much deeper, <clears throat> had a much deeper motive than he ever appreciated. And this is happening at the exact same time that his whole paternal side is walking barefaced into a trap that they hope they might be able to control. And he under starts to understand he has almost no control at all. Right. But that he has to assert some kind of control. I don't know. Maybe the scene with the hunter killer, the, the assassination attempt in his room is a metaphor for that too, where he has to become very still and very clear on what he can and cannot do in that moment. And when he acts, he has to move with great intentionality and great strength or, or he's completely lost. And it's like his entire experience in this movie is watching a hunter killer and trying not to move. Right. And only moving when he absolutely has to. And Dune part one is all just him watching and trying to be still and figuring out what's going on. And I think very important, and the scene comes through very much in the book. I, I hope it came through in the movie. I'm not sure. But certainly the movie triggered it for me as someone who knew the book. Is that – because the idea is that the hunter-killer, like, it senses movement, and once it starts to attack, the person it's attacking is almost defenseless. It's that he's kind of holding still, trying to figure out what to do, until, shout out Mapes, the the Fremen woman who's become kind of the house servant, mm-hmm. she because she is in danger, and he acts to save her. Yeah. Um, which is both it's good thinking of how they work, but it's also sort of showing him, you know, showing his that he does have this benevolent altruistic idea to him and are like wanting to protect others. Well, and that's a piece of him that it's 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 really interesting, you know, looking at this from the outside as somebody with a Christian heritage and vocation <clears throat> is that the the Christian context, we look in the Gospels. And we see an image of Messiah in the in the Gospels that is fulfilled by Jesus that is a largely nonviolent image. Right. Jesus doesn't use his power to kill or anything like that. And and something that for the last year or so that I've really been fixated upon too is an interpretation of, of the cru- the crucifixion and the resurrection, which is that, you know, if that, that God responds to the death of the son, as it were, not with death, not with more death, not with retribution, but with life. Like the way that plays out in the passion is the ultimate object lesson of Jesus saying, turn the other cheek. Violence right. is not an acceptable way to get to move forward in life here. And even God ultimately is like, oh, I am not going to hit you back. I'm going to yeah. give him back and we're going to try this again. And Paul, oh, and then you contrast that with the vision of the Messiah that we get in Revelation, which as far as I'm concerned is just a really fun to read acid trip. Yeah. Um, and I don't find it particularly authoritative until almost the very, very end. I, I, I just quick note on that. This is by no means canonical. Canonical is ridiculous. It, this has not been historically proven, but there is a theory about where the cave was that the Apostle John like went into you know, to write this and who knows if that ever even happened, but like 
uh, I guess archaeological biologists or whatever have done re- have done research and found that psychedelic like mushrooms or lizards or something like that were present at that cave. So the idea of it oh. being an acid trip is right. actually not entirely fanciful. And not but, to confuse the Apostle John with John of Patmos, who are almost certainly not even remotely the same person. Right. Yeah. Sorry um, for that. But. You know, you you contrast this vision of the Messiah who is, you know, what a friend we have in Jesus, who is this gentle sort of receives violence, but does not return it. And then Jesus walking in on a pale horse with a sword, destroying people with the sword of his mouth, which may be literal and may be metaphorical, but is probably both. And in Dune, you have Paul, who I, I love that moment. I love that they got it onto the film where he's fighting with Jameis. And the Fremen realize that this scrawny little kid, because he really is, he's supposed to be a 15-year-old scrawny kid. A little bit hard to translate, but Timothy Chalamet's um, physique does lend itself more to that than Kyle MacLachlan's did And uh, in 1984 version. They realize that he's actually tougher than Jameis. They can tell. And right. Stilgar says to Jessica at one point, is he toying with him? Because that would be an insult. Right. And Jessica says, no, he has never killed before. And that's going to be a recurring theme with Paul, that he wants to avoid lethal violence whenever possible. And, you know, in this universe where all the levers of power are turned by lethal violence, Paul does not want to do that. And in that, that I think is where he becomes his most messianic in a way that resembles the Jesus that you and I have preached at various times in our lives. Right. Because the way the Fremen view him is not that at all. He is, he's going to be the Christ knife, which is really close to Christ knife. Um, or Chris knife, if you want to pronounce it that way. Yeah. He, he is the blade that they're going to carry into the future. And right. he is, sits at this point of tension between the kid who doesn't want to kill anybody and a universe where everybody gets their power by killing. And, and I think that's very interesting, especially because I, I see a different side there, which is, granted, I, I've recently been on this kick of <coughs> reading a lot about the origins of Superman and how I think one thing that we can often forget, uh, especially because Christians have so sort of claimed this idea of the Messiah, and obviously it's one I religiously believe in, but, you know, histor- the idea of the Messiah comes from Judaism. Or, there are many other religions hold a similar idea. But the reason why, like most Jews, did not convert is because there was an idea. There were many, many reasons, but one of them was that the the Jesus was not thought to be the Messiah as prophesied, in part because there was elements of not of sacred violence in some like horrific way, but that like being a leader who would help in the fight towards freedom. And yeah, he failed. And, right. Yeah. Exactly. <coughs> Scandal and that, of the cross. Um, Superman, in many ways, is a very good representation of the Jewish idea of Messiah. And again, here I'm saying this as someone who is Christian. Mm-hmm. My family is Jewish, and so I, I've been involved in that world. And I, I really wish we could have gotten a rabbi on. And I, I might – not just any rabbi. I mean, but one of the ones who's talking about this, and we try and find uh, links for people to, to hear more of that thought. Because one of the things that I've heard there is that the idea of not wanting to use violence but willing to use violence when it is necessary, mm-hmm. uh, as Superman does, for example – is kind of an idea of that thought. And so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't believe Herbert was Jewish, although people pointed out a lo- number of other Jewish residences in this work. Um, but yeah, it's interesting how I, I feel like in the Paul character, we can really get this kind of wrestling with 
Christian messianic ideas, Jewish messianic ideas. Um, I know that messianic thought is a big part of of some parts of Islam as well. I don't, I can't speak to that, but I think there's, it, to me, Paul's a very interesting character because he's not just a Christian messianic figure, although we in the West probably, or we in the Christian world see that often. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting how many different kind of messianic we, aspects there actually are the, out there. We in the white Christian world. Yes, Let's yes. My, be super clear on that. <laughs> yeah, very important as well. So yeah, I think um, so. At the heart, because I mean, this is an ethics podcast. As much as we're talking about religion and colonization, mm -hmm. what's your thought on the choice that Paul is facing? And kind of, I think I'm guessing viewers are just the first movie can can guess what he's going to choose. But even putting that aside, like he's in this place where he's been presented with a chance to. The people want to think of him as this messianic god figure. Yeah. Uh, he's right now wrestling with claiming that. Uh, what, what's your kind of feeling on like the ethics there of the, the choice that he's facing? Well, I, it sort of brings me back to the Coriolis storm, the Ornithopter mm -hmm. and the Coriolis storm, because in that moment he has to submit to survive. Right. But throughout his story, what we're going to see is him attempting to use what power he has, which is an enormous power. Um, but perhaps still not great enough he, to mitigate the harm that he sees coming. Right. And it's like, you know, the, the T, what is it? I, my training in actual formal ethics is pretty limited, but you know, the telos, so the, the, the telos <laughs> that he sees, the outcome, the goal, he wants to try to, it, it's a violent outcome. Right. And the other way to get there is to try to get there with, you know, rules and his, that's the way his dad has gone. And he's going to constantly here sort of be buffeted by the winds of the winds that are blowing all around him, where he's going to continue to try to shape the path he's on in a way that, that mitigates damage and chooses to not kill even though he knows the outcome is just going to be bloody, bloody war. Right. Which is a little yeah. depressing, but, but that's the path he's on. Yeah. I, I think there's some truth to that. I think the other thing that I see is, especially in that fight where he's willing to kill, it feels like to, like he doesn't go to them and say, here I am. Mm -hmm. You know, I am your messianic figure. He says like, Hey, me and my mom just got chased out of our town. Can you help? Yeah. Um, and it feels to me like there's a sense of, and, I want to reread the book because I think this is somewhat in the book, but again, maybe not as much. It really pretty much presented as I'm here to listen, not I'm here to talk. Mm -hmm. You know, I am here to be with you and become one of you. And then I, I think he sort of has an attitude of if then after that you decide that I am this figure because of what you see in right. me, let's talk about it. But it feels like he's really trying to say, I'm, I don't want you to think of that for me because of what my mother and my mother's people taught me. Yeah. All those Except years, that know? it's his mother's training that is going to help him the most. Because right. the Bene Gesserit training, above and beyond many other things, is fundamentally a level of active listening that says, do not do anything until you're sure what you can do. Right. Because, you know, they are actually listening to inflections in the voice and body language and all of this stuff on a level that nobody else does. And what we get in the book that is completely gone in this version of the film, 
you know, in this filmed version, you get a little bit more of it in the 84 are her interactions with Dr. Yui. Um, Dune part one gives us almost zero understanding of why Yui betrays. You hear him mention a wife, uh, but the dialogue is often very hard to hear. So I recommend to anybody who hasn't seen the film yet to turn on your subtitles. Yeah. I watched it with subtitles. Um, It was a lifesaver. And he's got the diamond on his forehead indicating that he's got imperial conditioning, but they don't really talk about what that means in the 84 film. You do that. And in the book, there's this amazing scene between Yui and Jessica where she's watching his body language and, and waiting and waiting and waiting, but ultimately misreads it because she's a little distracted and he knows it because his wife was a Bene Gesserit and she taught him and it's just like a chess game and they're just waiting to see who's going to make the move that allows the other person to capitalize. And that's what Paul has to do. He has to really bide his time and wait and wait and wait until he has enough data. And of course we know he's a mentat, even if they've left Mm -hmm. that out of the film for eh, convenience, I suppose it's hard to translate. It's just wait and calculate Right. And wait for your moment to then attack with the blade. It's what he's learned from Duncan. It's what he's learned from Gurney. It's what he's learned from Thufir. The Fremen are going to teach it, but they all use it just a little bit differently. <clears throat> and, you know, we'll have to see whether or not, it, for those who don't haven't read further on into the books, you have to see how, yeah. it, see how it plays out for him. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that I most hope I see in the second movie. And I, granted... I did not love the first movie because I thought all these things we were saying we wish we had more of. I was like, could we just cut out all of those numerous want someone staring into the desert for 10 second scenes? <laughs> yeah. I, I know that people who are have a much more artistic understanding of movies than I do and a much more visual absolutely loved that. And so I'm like, okay, great. So the, it's a movie that isn't entirely for me and that's awesome. But to me, the, one of the things I – one of the questions that I think the book raises and doesn't really answer and I'm really – and maybe gives even an answer I don't love, and I'm curious what the movie will approach it is, mm-hmm. is this idea of where is the line between trying to understand someone else's context and thus communicate to them in a way that you can understand each other versus manipulating them by kind of weaponizing their own culture against them and or creating their own culture. You know, yeah. it's that like... If I know that this particular people understand that blue is a sign of peace, okay, so I wear blue. That's at one end. And at another end is I want to wear blue so a thousand years before people are going to go go meet them, I'm going to try and convince them that blue is a sign of peace so that when I show up wearing blue, they're going to see me as peacemakers, you know? And the Bene Gesserit are clearly much more on that second side and Paul wants to be on the first side. And how he navigates that is, I think, just such a fascinating part of the story. Yeah. Ultimately we're going to Paul's perhaps his biggest struggle is trying to maintain a dual identity as, um, and I guess, man, I guess this just makes him messianic from a Christian perspective with that whole sort of doctrinal, fully human and fully divine. Yeah. Paul is trying to figure out how to be fully Atreides and fully Fremen. And we won't see that conflict in the new movie until, unless Villeneuve gets to make a second one. Right. Um, but you know, the messianic figure who still see, I'm like, it's the great scene in one of my favorite scenes in, uh, the 84 version is, you know, 
Paul has joined the Fremen. He's gone fully native. His eyes are blue. Um, nobody has figured out that it's actually him steering the Fremen now in a way that they weren't before. They're attacking the Harkonnens left and right. And just out on some random sand dune one day when they're having a big fight, uh, the Fremen end up fighting some smugglers, not actually Harkonnens in this context. And Paul comes up to Gurney Halleck in, in the middle of the field of battle. And Gurney thinks he recognizes him, but all his eyes are showing him are a Fremen. Right. Who kind of looks like this kid he once used to train. And then Paul holds up the hand and he's wearing the signet ring still. And then you get this wonderful sort of re reunion between the two. And Patrick Stewart is going, you young pup, you young pup. Yeah. And I get a little, <laughs> and I get misty eyed about the whole thing. Um, but, you know, that's, that's Paul's trajectory in this film is trying to be both things. Right. And the question is does this work for him? Right. And I think, and, and, and I think ultimately the lesson of Dune as you move into at least the next two books is yes and no all at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah and I especially because I think that's, it, it's uh, one of the people I was on the podcast with the other night, again on the next reel, um, and I'll push the link. One of the comments that they were making is that in some ways this is Duke Leto's movie, you know, and that this is about, Duke Leto is trying to find a relationship between the Atreides and the Fremen that is benevolent, but is still based in colonization. Yeah. And and the point of the movie is that that doesn't work, or one of the points right. of it. And and so, yeah, so Paul in some ways is, you know... He's the evolution was, of his father's intentions. Right. Well, he's the evolution of both of theirs, because <clears throat> that's his father's intention. The Bene Gesserit was to manipulate yeah. and to convince them... So you can, and and he he does he doesn't want to fully embrace that, and so I think kind of as you said before, he's trying to go right into the storm. He's trying to say, I'm not going to try and tell the Bene Gesserit that I'm here to be beneficial. I'm not going to tell them that I'm here to fulfill this. I'm just going to go be with them yeah. and and see where the storm takes me. Do what you can do when you can do with what you have. Yeah, and <laughs> you may not get to where you want to go, but you're going to get somewhere. Right. Yeah, for sure. So I, I think it's a good place to kind of wrap up. Do you have any other last comments or questions you wanted to bring up about this? Mm. All I will say is that uh, I did I did very much enjoy the film. Um, I think that I will enjoy it more over time, I hope. Mm -hmm. um, visually, I thought it was stunning when I started to see the costumes work. And I don't normally even latch on to that kind of visuals, but I thought it was really cool. And that was the best thing about the 1984 for me, too, is right. narratively, it doesn't hold up because of some of the choices David Lynch made. Um, but man, visually, it totally holds together. And this one may end up being somewhat similar in that regard. Um, the thing I disliked most about it was I had somehow completely missed that this was only part one. Me too. I had. I, I don't think they made a big deal they, of that. I think they kind of hit it. And then my wife and I sit down to watch the film, and, and we just watched it at home because we have a kid and just coronavirus yeah. and babysitting money and all that kind of stuff we're just like nah, we'll just watch it at home and it says dune part one and i was like excuse me what yeah <laughs> like halfway through the film i paused it to watch the timer on the screen and i'm like how are they gonna get to where they need to get in that amount of time when they're going this slowly yeah that again that's that's kind of more the, the review side but <clears throat> i had a very similar feeling Especially because I thought the last 45 minutes really dragged and probably could have been part of a part two. Yeah. 
Um, more than anything, I kind of came out at feeling like this would be a great pilot for a 10 episode TV show. You know? Well, and isn't that um, just what we've learned in the last few years of streaming media? Is that yeah. so many, it's the lesson Star Wars has learned and it's the lesson Star Trek has learned that they need a longer storytelling format to really do justice to the source material. Yeah. And that's why Mandalorian and Discovery and Lower Decks and all these different shows do well with more time spread out. Right. I don't want to see a Ted Lasso movie. I want to see a Ted Lasso series. Yeah. And I think especially with things like um, His Dark Materials <clears throat> yeah. and uh, The Shadow uh shadow and bone what is it the um it, no oh, that's God, that's what it's called shadow and bone it's on netflix no his dark materials is one but no there's the other one that's about um uh it's kind of like it, it's set in kind of like a 19th century russia version of things and it's got the 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 rift that people have to cross oh god it's gonna drive me crazy um i think i thought that was shadow and bone but anyway like there, there, there's, there's a couple of different series that are out there where they've realized like making a a book into a movie is just often not going to yeah. work and make it a TV show. So anyway, sure, but that's more the review side, of, you know, wheel of time coming prequel Tolkien yep. stuff coming, really taking advantage of the medium. Would Dune yeah. have benefited from being a 10 part miniseries? Absolutely. Yeah. It would have benefited from that. Or, or at least doing it in the <clears throat> Tolkien style of shooting them all at once. And now this next movie is going to be released in three months because I think, when I found out that we hadn't even started, we hadn't even been approved to start filming right. the next Dune movie, was I was like, ugh. Deeply disappointing. But anyway, so Chris, it's been so glad to have you on. I definitely want to have you back. Uh, for people who are kind of curious, want to find more of your thoughts, either kind of um, your public talks about religion or, or nerdy stuff or anything like that, or your sermons, where, where can people find you? Uh, well, my, <laughs> my, my church puts... Uh, the, the the pandemic prompted us to start being more digital in our approach to the world. Mm -hmm. And so anybody who wants to see things that I have to say can go to my church website, which is UCC Anoka. So you, the letters UCC and then a N O K A dot org. Um, and you can find stuff there. Otherwise, mm -hmm. if you're smart enough to find me on Facebook, um, if I feel like I want to say something public, I put it on public, <laughs> I put it on public status. There you go. Yeah, and I um and, and certainly for folks who want to have more feedback, uh I will I will any of the questions or stuff you send to me, I will pass on to you, Chris, oh, sure. and give you a chance to help answer. And people can find us in a number of ways. If you go to the search for the ethical panda, three words, but you know, type it all as one, the ethical panda on Facebook or on Twitter, uh you'll find you'll find us. You can leave comments there. Uh you can also email us at theethicalpanda at gmail.com. Or you can just go to our website, theethicalpanda.com, and that's where you'll find information about this podcast. You'll find a contact form. Let us know what you think. You'll also find information about my other podcasts, the Star Wars Universe podcast, the Marvel Movie Minute on Thor that I'm doing, some of the other stuff I've done. And of course, a lot of those podcasts, except for the Marvel Movie Minute, are all part of the Stranded Panda family of podcasts, which is a great set of material to find. If you're into Discovery, they do episode-by-episode -episode reviews of all of Star Trek on the Star Trek Universe podcast. Uh, my friend uh, Matt Carroll, who helps run that network, he and I are currently recording episodes that will go live uh, next year uh, for the new season of The Orville, which I will maintain is the best Star Trek show currently on TV. And Chris, I know you and I have some disagreement <laughs> you and I, on that. You and I have a uh, difference of opinion there. <laughs> yeah, it, it's sort of like, you know, it, it, it's in the same way that I think fan fiction can become canon because yeah. it's 100% fan fiction. But uh, with the serial numbers wiped off. Uh, but yeah, check all that out. Check out what Chris is doing. And 
let us know what you think. There's so many questions we raised. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear from you if you're from uh, a different perspective than Chris and I are, you know, non-religious or different religious tradition or just whatever you think. Tell us how wrong we are. Tell us what you agree with. Tell us your own thoughts. Love to get that feedback. Thank you so much, everybody, and have a great day.